Everybody like makeovers? Aren't they fun, makeovers? One of the most popular TV features, especially on daytime TV, is the, uh, the makeover. You know, they take somebody from the audience and they redo their clothes, their hair, their makeup, transform them into a new person. And it's the thing we like the most about movie stars, right? The fact that they have the money and the talent to reinvent themselves in different characters, different styles from year to year. You know, the great attraction to these makeovers, of course, is that within a few minutes, a person can seemingly change their entire look and be a different person. They even have the extreme makeover, which is not you know, makeup and stuff, but it's plastic surgery that they throw into the, that's why they call it extreme. Uh, still, a lot of people love to watch those things on TV. Of course, it doesn't take a PhD to figure out that even if the outside is new, it's the same old person on the inside. And if we could follow that person away from the studio into regular life, I mean, the things that were on the inside of them will eventually creep through and return them to feeling and many times looking exactly like they looked before the makeover. I've even saw a show once where they kind of followed people six months, a year later, the person that lost all the weight or the person that had their hair done and you know, all the stuff. And six months later, they had the same goofy haircut that they had when they came into the studio. They were still wearing the same frumpy clothes, so on and so on. They went back to being who they were. Simple as that. You know, this is not to say that transformation into a dramatic new you is impossible. It just isn't achieved solely with makeup or clothes or diets, even plastic, even plastic surgery. And so we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You're wondering why this intro? What does this have to do with 1 Corinthians 6? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about a radical change a makeover, if you wish, that is possible, and here's the important part, that is possible and permanent. And he describes the three steps that lead to this new you that so many people are searching for in the wrong place. So he talks about the old you. He starts with the old you. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, shall we? Verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, Paul here is dealing with what people are on the inside because inside change leads to outside change and only inside change is permanent change. You know, the outside can be altered or improved, but it always deteriorates. Paul deals with changes in the areas that affect us permanently. And he begins by describing the old you, the before picture, the state in which his hearers were before he found them with the gospel. Now he makes a list here, and this list is not meant to be a complete list of all the possible sins 
of mankind. It's a representation of the type of sins that these Corinthians were involved in before their spiritual makeover. And he mentions the following. Sometimes we don't know exactly the meaning of these words. They're in the Bible, but we're not sure exactly what they mean. So he mentions fornication. Fornication is a broad term for improper sexual conduct between unmarried people. He mentions idolatry, and idolatry, of course, worship of pagan gods and all the activities related to that worship. He talks about the effeminate. Interesting word, the original Greek word meant something that was soft. Now the English word effeminate suggests you know, a transvestite or a crossdresser, but the Greek word here has a much wider meaning to include all forms of sexual perversion, including transvestites and pornography and all kinds of lewd behavior. It's covered by this word. It's unfortunate it was translated into this particular word because we kind of think it's only one thing, but it's, it includes that, but a much broader category. Then he mentions homosexuals. Again, this word does not appear in the Greek and the Bible does not honor this practice with its own name like the English language does. Uh, of course, the words that he uses in the Greek refers to the practice of men having sex with other men and by extension women with women. And, and, and in the Greek they actually spell it out. There's no one word that describes it. It's, it's a whole phrase that said, you know, men who have sex with other men like men have sex with women. You know? In English we compress that into one word. In the Greek, they, kind of, they describe the activity. He says thieves, of course, those who steal. The covetous, those who are greedy and lustful. You know, the sin of wanting what is forbidden, that's covetousness, wanting what is forbidden, or never being satisfied with what you have. That also is covetousness. He talks about drunkards, those who are addicted or who were addicted to alcohol, or addicted to any substance. You know, the term drunkard simply means you're addicted to something. Revilers comes from a Greek word to abuse or to rail. Hate mongers, uh, those who abuse physically and verbally, those who slander others, uh, malicious gossip, that's all revilers. And then he mentions swindlers, cheaters, liars, con men, dishonest in business. Now I want you to note that there are 10 sins that he mentions and it's significant that he mentions 10 because the number 10 represents sin in general. Uh, for those of you who are in my um, Revelation, Daniel and Revelation class, you know when you look at Jewish numerology each number has a certain representation so the number 10 represents something that is whole something that is complete. And so 10 sins representing sinfulness in general. Note also that these 10 stand side by side equal in their sinfulness, equal in the power to condemn. You know, God sees homosexuality in the same light as He sees abuse or fornication or lying. It's all evil. It's all sinful. Paul says that the Corinthians were some of these things. 
and as a result were denied the kingdom of heaven. He's not just talking about anybody. He said, you people in Corinth, he's calling them out. He's not putting names next to the sins, but he's naming sins that were prevalent in that church. He's naming sins that people were guilty of before they became Christians and before they became members of the church in Corinth. So he says, they were some of these things and as a result were denied the kingdom of heaven. In other words, these sins will keep a person out of heaven and send them to hell. You know, one means the other. You know, if, you're, if you're kept out of heaven, th then it means that you're going to hell because there's only two spots. There isn't a third spot. So we tend to make a distinction between acceptable and unacceptable sin. But the Bible tells us that any one or a combination of these sins will condemn our souls. Now these sins then defined and described the way that the old Corinthians looked. Now Paul will explain to them the three steps that led to a complete change in their lives. A spiritual makeover, if you wish. Three steps that took them from one life into a brand new life. And so the new you. In 1 Corinthians 11a, Paul says the following. Such were some of you, but you were washed. And I'll stop right there. The new you begins with a new cleanliness. The first thing needed in this transformation is to remove these old things from our lives. Sinful words, sinful actions, sinful thoughts, sinful intentions, they remain constant in time before an eternal God and they continually condemn us before Him. Do you ever think about that? Your lie stands there. It's a lie. Okay, let's take a lie because we all, we all lie. Your lie is there and it just stands there and it's like a witness in a witness box and it continually gives witness to your lie, to your sin. On February the 12th, 1979, you lied. There it is. It stands there in time and it continually condemns you. And so each sin remains as a witness before God, proving we are not worthy, showing we are not fit to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So the first order of business is to remove these things that make us look ugly, that make us look dirty and unworthy to be in the presence of God. And so Paul says that they were washed, just like he was washed of his sins in Acts Chapter 22, verse 16, Ananias said to Paul, imagine he was hesitating. You know, sometimes people, they hesitate, you know, they've heard the gospel, they know what they have to do and they hesitate and we say, well, can I, are there any more questions? Can I, you know, can I show you more passages to demonstrate that this is necessary in order to respond to the gospel? Well, Paul was like that. He was thinking, hmm, maybe. And Ananias said to him, hey, what are you waiting for? Why do you delay? Apparently he was delaying for some reason or other. Maybe he wanted to think it over. 
Arise, he says, and, and be baptized and wash away your sins. It's very rare, and I can't think of another place in the New Testament where somebody, a human being, gives Paul an exhortation. The Lord encourages him, but I can't think of another person who says, hey, Paul, you've got to do this. But Ananias told him, Paul, what are you waiting for? Peter says that baptism doesn't wash the outside, it washes the inside of a person, the conscience. 1 Peter 3.21, he says that baptism is an appeal to God for what? A good conscience. And then of course, familiar passage, Acts 2.38, says that baptism offers forgiveness. God offers us forgiveness and we receive it in the waters of baptism. The deeds are pardoned, but here's the important point for my lesson tonight. The deeds are removed from history. That lie that stands there, February the 12th, 1979, whatever it was, that's still there is finally removed from history. Someone will say, well, you can't just make history disappear. The things that I've done, I've done them, they're there, they're in history. Where are they if they've been removed? Well, Paul answers that question in Colossians 2, verse 14. He says, He has taken it, meaning our list of sins, He has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. And so we can say our sins are removed from the witness stand and they are placed on the cross. They're still there. You can't erase them because they're history. They they happened but they are removed from the witness against us and they are placed, nailed, as it were, to the cross of Christ, where they no longer have the power to witness against us. When we want to see our sins, we can look to the cross and see them atoned for. When God looks for our sins, He looks to the cross and sees His perfect plan for our salvation accomplished. So the first step in the makeover of the inner person is cleanliness. By washing away the past in the purifying water of Christ's baptism. We may look the same on the outside when we come out of the water, but the inside is brand new without any history of blemish or stain. The second step in creating a new you is to have a new purpose. Let's go back to our passage, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, some were such of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. Sanctified. The Bible calls it sanctification, but what it boils down to is a new purpose in life. Now the word, as a matter of fact, Marty was talking about that this morning. The word sanctification means to separate or to select something for a special purpose. Something is sanctified when God selects someone or something and puts it aside for His special use. For example, some men were selected by God to do a special work as priests. They were sanctified as a result. They were set apart. In this new and separate task, they were given special clothing, special duties, a special place to work, a special lifetime, 
uh, lifestyle rather. All of this was part of their sanctification. It was part of their set apartness. Well, in the same way, Paul explains that once we are baptized, once the sins are washed away, God sets us apart from those who are unwashed. There's only two kinds of people in the world, those who are washed and those who are unwashed. He does this by adding us to the church. In Acts 2.47, Peter says that they were being added daily. Those who were saved were being added daily to the church. And as members of the church, we learn what our special tasks are, what our special lifestyle is all about. And this lifestyle is called, for sake of a better word, Christianity. That's our lifestyle. And within the church we learn about it and we practice it and we seek others to share it with. And so no matter what we were in the past, good or bad, because of our washing we now have a new identity and because we have a new identity we have a new purpose. We are no longer thieves. We're no longer fornicators. We're no longer drunkards because these things are gone. But by the same token, we are no longer homemakers, we're no longer accountants, we're no longer carpenters, teachers. God has set us apart and He has placed us in the body of Christ and He has erased our sin and He has made out of us Christian homemakers, Christian accountants, Christian carpenters, Christian teachers, Christian teenagers, Christian managers. Do you see the difference? Our purpose being to season every part of this world with the flavor of Christ. And then a third step in our makeover. We go back to our passage. I'll read it over again. Such were some of you, he says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so Paul names one last step to the transformation, uh, the transformation process, and he calls it justification. I'll give you another word, okay? Let's call it security, shall we? Security. To be justified means to be acquitted and to be secure. Remember that case, they called it the the trial of the century, the 20th century. Remember O.J. Simpson, the, the trial he was, uh, he was on trial for murder. And of course, uh, he had the motive, he had the opportunity, a lot of the evidence pointed towards him, the blood evidence, everything pointed towards him. And the big question was, if it wasn't him, who, who could it be? Who would do such a thing you know, so randomly? But a strange thing happened on the way to the courthouse, right? on the way to the verdict. They said, not guilty. And what happened when they said, not guilty? Well, they set him free. He was, in biblical language, justified. He was justified. Now, regardless of the degree of guilt, if you are acquitted or justified, you get to go free. Now, I'm not suggesting here that I know if Mr. Simpson was guilty or not, he knows and God knows. So I'm not making or passing a judgment on him. I'm simply using his example to demonstrate to you 
that when someone is justified, when someone is acquitted, irregardless if they actually did it or not, they're set free. Well, we are guilty of our sins. We are guilty of our crimes. But Jesus pays the price for these by suffering on the cross and dying. Because Jesus does this, we're acquitted in God's court. We're set free from our punishment. We're not free because we're innocent. That's the, that's the good news. <laughs> the good news is we're guilty. <laughs> and the fact that we're set free, even though we're guilty, that's good news for me. Very good news. We're free because Jesus took the punishment for our crimes. He took it onto Himself at Calvary. We're guilty of the crime, but we don't do the time. And I praise God and will praise God eternally for that gift. And so Paul says that God's gift to those who are washed and sanctified is the promise that they will not have to suffer or make up for the sins that he has just mentioned. God has taken care of these through Jesus Christ. And you know, I want to make a kind of a side, a little side note here. And we talk about, oh, he's so legalistic, you know, he's so legalistic, she's so legalistic. Let's understand what legalistic means. Legalistic doesn't mean that somebody doesn't agree with you. <laughs> Sometimes if somebody doesn't agree with you about some church issue, oh they're legalists. You know. Let's understand what legalism is according to the Bible. Legalism is when somebody tries to make up for their own sins. That's legalism. I, I, I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to say everything right. I'm going to worship right. I'm going to do everything right. And in doing everything right, in some way, that justifies me. That's legalism. Okay? The gospel teaches us that God, through Christ, He's the one that has done the thing that makes us right. And that's His death on the cross. In another passage in 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 to 9, John explains that so long as one continues to remain set apart in Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus continues to acquit that person of all sin that they do even after they have been washed of sin as well. In other words, no more sins go into history to witness against me. The sin that I do today, as much as I fight it, as much as I don't want to, because of my weakness, because of my ignorance, if I sin, that sin goes directly to the cross. It doesn't go to the witness box against me. It goes to the cross immediately. And you know what one of the biggest problems that Christians have? Guilt. They continually feel guilty for their imperfection. They continually carry a burden of guilt because they're not perfect. Their perfection that they see and the perfection that they want, they're not accomplishing in their lives, so they feel guilty. That's Satan. I always tell others, listen to the voice. The voice that's saying to you, you're, you're not good. You're not going to make it. Look, you sinned again. Look what. 
That's not Jesus' voice. That's the devil's voice. The voice of Jesus says, come to me. The voice of Jesus doesn't say, go away. The voice of Jesus doesn't say, you're no good. The voice of Jesus says, you're not good enough. That's not the voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus says, come to me. The voice of Christ says, I love you. The voice of Christ reassures you that every time you fail, that failure goes to the cross and not to the witness box. I would hope that we would remember that. The old person worried about guilt and punishment and condemnation and suffering. The new person given the assurance that all of his or her sins, past, present, future, will not be charged to him, but will go to the cross. What peace that brings. What great satisfaction. I mean, that's the one thing that enables us to have joy in this life. It's the one thing that enables us to go to sleep at night despite the ups and downs of the day that we can go to sleep at night with a thankful heart. You know, I think it's easy to be drawn into the worship of beauty and youth because our world loves these things and puts such emphasis on these things. Growing older and more frail, losing our vitality and our virility, well, it's not a sin. It's the result of the sin that's in the world. How much more at peace we would be if we worried less about looking and acting a few years younger and concentrated instead on making changes in the area where we truly can make a difference, where we truly can stop the clock for eternity. Paul teaches us that God provides all of us with not a method, but a person who can transform us into new people. A people who are beautiful in God's eyes because our sins have been forgiven. A people who have a completely new purpose and meaning to their lives. And a people who will live forever in heaven, never to experience sin or death ever again. You know, I thought the other day, what a, what a, wonderful, what a wonderful promise has been given us with the promise of heaven. So many things we think about, but you know one thing that does not exist in heaven? Fear. If we only understood how many things we do because of fear. I'm afraid he won't like me, so I'll do this. I'm afraid I won't be on time. I'm afraid I'm not good enough. I'm afraid I won't make enough. I'm afraid that we won't make ends meet. I'm afraid to fill in the blank. Imagine how wonderful life will be when there is no fear. That, that, that emotion will no longer exist. Perfect love, right, casts out fear. I don't think we'll get to perfect love in this lifetime, but I know we will in the next. So Jesus Christ, He can, He has, and He will do all these things to everyone who comes to Him to be washed clean in His baptism and who live faithfully in His 
church and who will have a new hope for a new life forevermore. And so I make the invitation based directly on the lesson. It's not even indirect. Sometimes you know, you're talking about something else and you have to make a bridge to make an invitation. Tonight, no bridge. Tonight, if you have not been washed, don't put that off. Begin the transformation now. And if you've been one, I'll make a, another little invitation here that we don't normally do. If you've been afraid of everything and you need to stop being afraid but you just don't know how, if you need for the Lord to just give you the strength to stop being afraid, then I encourage you to make that, make that desire, that wish known that we might be able to pray for you as a body of Christ. Whatever your needs, we do offer this moment uh, as an opportunity for you to receive ministry from the church. Please take advantage of that now as we stand and as we sing our song of encouragement.